Uh, I've got a question to start off with. Right off the bat, a question for you. What I want to ask you is, do you enjoy God? That's the way to put it, isn't it? There was a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was an enemy of Christianity, by the way. He said about Christians of his day, coming from an atheist type of view, really, I would believe in their salvation that they looked a little more like people who had been saved. (laughs) Ouch! Stings, doesn't it? Body of Christ. Now, we don't want to side with our enemies and uh, their viewpoints, but I think he has a very valid point. Christians sometimes are not joyous and they don't show that they're Christians. And because of the salvation that we have, because of the blessings that we have in our great God, here we are, and we are the people who most ought to be joyful and rejoicing. If we purely looked at the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian, as far as the level of emotions are concerned, as far as what God has given us, I think we'd be startled to find out that Sometimes there's no difference whatsoever in the way that they appear as being blessed and happy in the Lord, joyous in the Lord. You'd never tell. That's sad, isn't it? And yet that's what we are to be, the lights. Even Martin Luther was an example of that. Uh, Yes, he rejoiced, but uh, biographers of Martin Luther tell us that in the latter years of his life, he became a pretty grumpy old man. That's pretty sad. He was gloomy. And uh, so much, uh, one day his wife entered into his study. Can you imagine being the wife of Martin Luther? Better be pretty strong, right? Well, she was. She entered into his study and is reading a book. And she was dressed in absolute black all over, with a veil over her head. Where do you think she'd been? Or it looked like she'd been. And Martin said, well, who's dead? And she said, God is. Immediately, the breath was taken from this old reformer. And this is his wife. She says, my soul, why do you talk like that? And she says, because of your gloom. (laughs) It was as God had died. And all the promises of God had died with Him. Does that make sense? She had a valid point there, didn't she? Joy is an emotion. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And emotions can go to extremes. They can go from one end to the other end. You have people who can't control their emotions, and you have others who want to act like there's no such thing as emotions ever, and they are a bad thing, and that's not true at all. Neither one of those are. We must get a balance, especially on what joy is, because Paul talks about it all throughout his epistles, and in the book of Philippians, that is the very main point. So here we are again talking about uh, the joy of the Lord. And so I think that is uh, rather uh, staggering when we see Paul talk about that with all his doctrine. And he commands that joy be done by God's people. Uh, The very existence of our lives is to glorify God by rejoicing in Him. Right? We are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We, uh, I think we glorify Him by rejoicing in Him, as John Piper says. How best can we give Him glory? By rejoicing in Him. Being obedient to that command. So, how do we find that? Well, we need to focus. We need to rest on the centrality 
of Christ in our lives. Christ in our lives. That's a a major point. Uh, But you know what? The title of our message today is called Fighting for Joy. Because it doesn't come naturally. You can say, well, if anything could come naturally, it should be joy, right? We all want to be rejoicing. We want to be happy, don't we? I don't know of anybody that doesn't want to be happy. Who wants to go around and be sad? I don't know of anybody that wants to be that way. Although people put themselves in that. But we must work at it. We have to fight for joy. Um, We have to fight for it. We are to put it on display as God has made it a major characteristic of a Christian. We have this. He has uh, given us the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy is the very second fruit of the Spirit. My, and then we're commanded to put that on display. Yes, because it's a major characteristic. We know about love, but the joy is right there with it. Um, Paul writes to the Philippians and he delineates here in our text today between the false Christians and true Christians. And it's amazing that he starts it out with joy. It's interesting. I always wondered, okay, he says joy, and then boom, he goes into this next thing about the dogs. <laughs> and then the next thing about you know Christians. And you go, well, how's that going in there? Well, when you have true Christians and you have false Christians and false teachers... The false teachers, the false Christians, want to take away the true joy of the true Christians. They want to steal our joy, folks. And that's what Paul is talking about here. They had the danger back then, and the danger is here today. We have to fight for this joy. It eludes us. It's so elusive. We have it and then it's gone. We have it then it's gone. So go the emotions. But then there's a part of it where even though you can be feeling terrible, you can still say, I rejoice in the Lord because of who He is and because of His promises. So let's, uh, you know, we can have all sorts of struggles. We know that we all do. We, we really have to admit that. We don't want to fake joy and we'll be talking about that. But let's see how we can encourage each other through the Word of God this morning uh, as He says, Rejoice at all times. First three verses of chapter 3 is where we're at. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let's put no confidence in the flesh and let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for an enlightening uh, to each one of our minds so that we can understand what He has for us today. Let Him speak to us. That's what we want, right? Father, we thank You for this Word. Again, as we approach um, this text dealing with joy, that we can understand that we have a battle and a fight to have this joy uh, be put on display. And help us to understand this Word this morning so that it would glorify and honor You. Alright, very first word is Finally. And you know what? If you've been sitting uh, in in church for a long time and you hear the preacher, Dennis, say, finally, and you go, oh, been here forever this morning. And then he goes on for 20 more minutes. 
This is the last verse, I promise, right? How many times have you heard me? Oh, uh, one more verse, right? Well, Paul says finally. And I'm not so sure as if he is saying, okay, we're at the end of the letter here now, because really we're only halfway through. There are still two more chapters or 44 verses. So I don't think Paul is doing that even though he's writing by the inspiration of God. But he's not automatically writing either. He's putting his personality in with this. Uh, you know, and it could be you know, he's putting his finishing touch here. And then all of a sudden he keeps going and is, as, as he's inspired by God. It could be that. Uh, but it could mean this, and I, I think this is really what it means. Finally. Or furthermore. Or so then. Now then. He's changing gears. And he's going into something a little bit different here. Uh, He's going to go back to the importance of joy, which is the theme. And he's going to reflect upon false Christianity versus true Christianity. And and we know that false Christianity is going to try to take away the joy of the true Christian. And so he commands this. Finally, my brethren, and there's that my brethren, my beloved. Paul is really... Uh, in in love with other Christians. And his family really loves him. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I say rejoice. So many times I say that. Well, the theme, uh, let's just back this up and say, oh, Dennis, I think you're carrying this a little bit too far. You're just trying to make this fit. Look, look in verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I rejoice because what? Christ is proclaimed. Verse 25, same chapter. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I think that's incredible because he said it would be better... It would be great if he, if he died and went to be in the presence of the Lord. And we all know what that means, especially in times when we're battling things. But wouldn't it be great to go be with the Lord? But he's willing to give that up so he can go serve the Philippians. Because he wants the joy uh, of seeing their joy in the faith. Um, chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete. How, Paul? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There he gets into the unity and then the humility. Uh, Move on. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 2. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Uh, Paul continues. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Getting the idea? (laughs) Verse 28, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him, this is Epaphroditus, again, you may rejoice. I'm sending him back to you so that you guys may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Do you think Paul's making a point? 
don't think anybody would argue with that. Chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's rejoicing. He wants them to rejoice. Everybody rejoice, right? Rejoice, rejoice. This is the sphere in which our joy exists. It's in Jesus Christ. Look at this. Finally, my brethren, he says something different this time. Rejoice. What's the next phrase? In the Lord. Rejoice in Christ. That's how you do it. That's the sphere. Even when you don't feel like it. Even when there is no reason to rejoice, you still rejoice because of why? Oh, I'm in Christ. Oh, I forgot about that. I'm in the Lord. I'm in Christ. That's a good reason, isn't it? There's where your true joy is found. Now, it's not a fake joy. And you can go around and say, Oh, man, yeah, I'm doing perfect. And man, I mean, everything has collapsed this week. And you've had such a challenge in everything you've done. Hey, I want to rejoice because everything's fine. You know, everything's good. Everything's perfect. You know what I mean? We're not. We're not doing that. I mean, it doesn't seem that way. God knows that. And he know, and Paul knows this when he writes to Philippians. He knows where they're at. He knows the persecution that they're going through. He knows the deep anxiety that they have, the anxiety that they have for him. The anxiety that they have for Epaphroditus. They're, they're really insecure about this whole thing. And so Paul writes this as he writes in this letter. Um, there are a lot of people who want to give you this message. Uh, rejoice by doing a couple of things. Either they want you to pretend like your problems aren't there. You want to see somebody rejoicing and man, they're really down. And so we want to pretend that it's really not there, right? Uh, or the problems really aren't that big. See, it's not that we have to be giggly and laughing and just faking it like we're really true and then we're really, we're hurting deeply here. The joy is down deep because we know we have the promises in Christ, but at the same time, we're going through some really hard things. God never asks us to have an unrealistic joy, a plastic joy, because He knows personally where we're at. And He knows when we're faking it. Um, you know, you have that 900-pound gorilla there in the front room, and you say, "Well, it's really not there." <laughs> I got a problem here, right? Um, that's not what he's asking us to do—to to pretend that our, we don't have problems. But I want to say, and I want to be encouraging to all of us this morning. We know it. We already know what the answer is. He's not saying rejoice because your problems really aren't there. It's really not that bad. He's saying rejoice in the midst of your problems because that's the Christian walk. That that is where it's at. Even in the midst of your really big problems. Really, 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 really big problems. And how big are they (laughs) compared to eternity? Uh, Remember Louis Giglio? Always remember that. How great is our God and all that. You know, and you have that going out into the universe and you see the you know the, the, the moon and then you see the planets and the stars and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you feel like this and you get scrunched down to almost nothing. And if we're that way, what are our problems compared to eternity? Nothing. Nothing. God's using those. So that gets our focus back on the right place. We are recipients of promises. We receive the promises God has. 
they are much greater. Take all the sum total of our problems and add those up against the promises that God has given us with all His grace. Man, they don't even compare, do they? Don't compare at all. All the fears and the the heartaches. (laughs) All the heartbreaks that we have in our lives. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Stop it, Paul. (laughs) No, we love that, don't we? We go, oh yeah. You know what? Maybe my problem really isn't that big. Because God is much bigger than this, right? But we see it with with, with kind of a slanted vision here. Supernatural joy. That's what he's saying when he's saying rejoice in the Lord. It's supernatural because it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not an emotional outburst. It's not some kind of good feeling. It's not some exhilaration that's associated with an event. It's not associated with an event. It's an association with a relationship. The relationship is Jesus Christ. The vent looks really bad. Or it may look good. doesn't matter. It's over here. But the person, the relationship, Jesus Christ, over here. Compare it. No contest. Right? In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Ephesians 1-3. through 3, It always puts it back into place. You're feeling down? Go to Ephesians 1, man. See where you're really at. Wow. You have been adopted into the family of God and you were predetermined before the foundation of the world that this would happen. <laughs> Without a doubt. And you're there forever with Him. It doesn't say rejoice because of what the Lord has given you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't necessarily say rejoice in the Lord of what He is giving you right now. That's okay. Rejoice for that, but that's not the ultimate reason. And it's not because of what the Lord is going to give you. Not just that. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. On the human level. It's hard to understand. But from the spiritual realm, we see that the Holy Spirit produces that joy. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. If you're controlled by the Spirit of God, what's going to happen? You're going to have love. You're going to have joy. Peace, right on down the line, right? If you're filled with the Word, Colossians says, be filled with the Word of God, which richly dwells within you. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Word of God, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not that difficult, is it? If we have the Word of God indwelling in us. The relationship says, you know what? I am in God's hands. He has me. It's okay. I have a relationship here. He's taking control of me. Christ has control. The Holy Spirit has control. The Father has control. You are controlled by the triune God, the Creator of the universe. Wow, are these promises? Are these incredible? It is well with my soul. Oh, that would have been good to sing today, wouldn't it? And now that is in the midst of some of the worst happenings or events that could be. The writer of that song, that hymn, lost 
his family as they were sailing, as they were on the ship. Lost his family. It is well with my soul, he writes. It is well. It is well. Those thunder, uh, thunderings and lightnings that we've been hearing, we don't fear that really, do we? But, we sang that song, that new song, that's an old song, that Zach was singing this morning. Did you see the lightning and the thunder in that? And that's talking about that's what's going on around us in our lives. A lot of songs like that, aren't there? Because that's, that's our lives. Most of the time, there's, you know, there's a lot of times when the sun is out, but there are a lot of times when the storms come. <coughs> it's a supernatural thing here. Supernatural. The relationship here is eternal. We have to fight for this joy, though. Things contend against joy, right? We have the joy and all of a sudden, boom, something tries to knock it out from underneath us. John Calvin said something about this. He said, that theologian, he didn't talk about this kind of thing, did he? (laughs) This is what he loved to talk about. Satan never ceases to try to dishearten us by daily rumors. (laughs) They're only rumors. Daily rumors. That's how Satan does it. In other words... John Calvin here is drawing to our attention the fact that these problems we face in the world that are real, they do exist, they're big. (laughs) But what happens? First of all, these problems tempt us to think that neither God is not real or He doesn't care. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to be thinking that God is saying, hey, that's not a real problem. It's not a big deal. Uh, Satan wants to say to you that God doesn't really care. He's just out there hanging out. He's got other people to take care of and uh, he's forgot about me. And I don't see any reason why he shouldn't forget about me anyway. (laughs) So we enter into that thing. You know what? We've just entered into sin (laughs) because now we are doubting who this great God is. Either God is not there for you and He doesn't care about you or these things really aren't real or He does care about us. These problems are there, they're real, but He's going to take care of it as we trust in Him. We rest in the taste of God's grace. Are you feasting on the Word of God this morning? Are you feasting off of His Word? Any kind of sorrows, griefs, anxieties, annoyances that are in our lives, when we taste the sweet grace of God, it's sweetened, didn't it? It reminds me of the Passover. Remember the Passover? You have the maror, the bitter herbs. In other words, what's that called? What is that stuff called? Horseradish. <laughs> And you know what that can do? Oh man, it can bite and it can go on fire. And some of you are witnesses what happened uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I did a, we did a Passover at Emmanuel Baptist. And uh, I had up there, I, I hadn't tasted it. And usually I can, I can conquer that stuff, but I'll tell you, this stuff was on fire. And I mean, it shot up through my head and it did what it was supposed to do. It made me cry. 
almost was crying in tears. I was over there laughing. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't want people to see it. Man, their tears come out of my eyes. This stuff was so strong. I took a great big bite of it. And I saw some others do the same thing. I think they had the same thing I did. Uh, but, you know, it, it's good to feel what it was like before Christ. And that's what horseradish does. But when you put the sweetness of that haraset on top of the horseradish, now you've got something that makes it much milder. Matter of fact, you, you put the, a lot of sweet stuff on there. You really put the sweet stuff on there. I mean, you really did that, which I didn't do. And I should have done that as I put it on that unleavened bread. And, you know, it just takes away that hard bitterness that was there because that's resembling the sweet taste of God's grace. The Word of God, it takes away that bitterness. It's sweetened. You see what he's telling us here? You have to fight for the joy. You have to see in the Christian life what the sweetness is. Paul is saying, I am so serious about this. I am so serious about this joy of your joy that I want to give you weapons to be able to fight for the joy. When you have losses, when you have your crosses, all your anxiety, your sorrows, your griefs, your trials, they come into your life. Here's how you fight for joy. And you don't fight them as saying, oh, it's not so bad. This is really not happening to me. I'm going to deny this and I'm going to think positive. I'm going to say a positive word and because I deny it, it's not really happening. And you know it's still there. (laughs) What's happening here? What do you do? In realistic way, you take your troubles to the foot of the cross you remember Pilgrim's Progress? And he goes and takes his sack, his burden, lays it down at the cross. Now that was for salvation. But we continually go to go to the cross. Do, you know, do, do we not? We want to take whatever burden it is today it's bothering us, take that to Him because that's a bigger truth. A joy like that is a greater truth. So Paul's big argument in this whole section, he wants them to behold the big overlying truth and to believe that in our hearts. That's what he wants them and us here. Or if we don't, we're going to be unarmed when we're hit and joy is not going to supplant that. Paul is going to describe here in the next verse, in verse uh, 2, Teachers will come along and offer something that sounds like Christianity. Matter of fact, it really sounds good. I like that. Oh, that's that's right. That sounds so good. But it's not gospel. A lot of those teachers out there today, they're all over the airwaves. They're in the books representing Christianity. They're the spokesmen of Christianity today. TDJ. <coughs> One of those kind of guys. Many others. And they come alongside kind of what Christianity is, says some things that sound great. Some of the things are truths, but many things are not. And they say they want to make a better you. You can be better. We want to make you better. 
We want you to put confidence in yourself. Now, in a sense, there is truth to that. But the fact of the matter is, is we do sin. And there is nothing in us that is any good outside of the person of Jesus Christ. So rather than than self-esteem, we should have Christ-esteem. And there's a slight difference that is incredibly different. Now, we don't want to make a better me. I do want to be like Christ, but I want to be like Christ according to God's Word, absolutely. I do not want to put confidence in myself, and Paul is going to be saying about that. Uh, No matter how much work I do to be a good person, hey, be good. I want to be accepted by God, right? Tell you what, those things will not bring you joy because eventually they'll make you, uh, that will steal your joy because you try so hard and it doesn't ever happen. So we go to the joy stealers in verse 2. By the way, at the end of verse 1, after he said about rejoicing the Lord, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Somehow they've heard about this either in this letter already, which you could see in in chapter 1, or he has stated it to them. Um, A lot of commentators say, and if we wanted to take time, we could look in chapter 1 and see some of those, but we'll move on here. But he's saying this because it's a safeguard. He said it before. He says, I'm, I'm writing these things for a safeguard or so you won't fall or stumble. That's the idea for safeguard. I don't want you to fall or stumble. I'm writing these things. It's kind of the same thing that uh, Paul said in Acts 20, uh, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. He goes to the Ephesian elders, meets with them, and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in amongst you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul warns them. He says, here's what's going to happen. Well, they're wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. They're not going to come in in, in, a, in a way that is looking false. And they're not going to come in saying, hey, we're false, we're false, we want you to follow us. Just like Satan works. They come in... Looking like sheep. I don't know if you've been on Facebook very much. Uh, some of them pe- people come up every once in a while with a picture, and they have this picture of this. It looks like a, a perfectly good sheep, but then right underneath that face that they have is something so evil looking. <laughs> but people can see that sheep and think it's it's okay. Uh, wolves in sheep clothing, and uh, this is what Paul is talking about here. He had told them, don't be alarmed. I'm I'm telling you, I don't want you to stumble, but I do want you to beware. Check it out. Watch out. Uh, He wants to protect them. You know, he really has a concern for them. So, these are the Judaizers. And if you're not familiar with the Judaizers, you probably are, but if you're not, the Judaizers are ones who are posing as Christians would say they're Christians. They would admit it. They would say they're Christians, but yet they have retained all of the Old Testament law. And that's the Mosaic law and all the traditions. And 
the ceremonial rituals, the circumcision, everything that the Mosaic law had, they're still following and say, yeah, we're Christians too, but we have to do all these, and of course the Sabbath and, and everything. You know, it's just like you're back at Mount Sinai, only you're calling yourselves uh, Christians. Well, folks, that exists today. It, it exists in mainline denominations. It exists in every church. It exists in us sometimes who believe in a grace centered gospel. We tend to go back to rigid rituals or laws in our own hearts that really are Pharisaic and have nothing to do with Scripture. And Paul says in Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, we can tend to do that. We can go back and put up those, those kind of laws. So this is for all of us. See, that's this is how joy can happen. Paul doesn't want them to have that. Whenever he wrote Galatians, it was the same kind of thing going on. He knew that that would happen to them and would happen all throughout the church age, and it has. It is going on now, incredibly, in a big way. Uh, what does he say? Beware of the dogs. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking. If you're thinking football, I don't know how many athlete people we have here, but if you're thinking football, it's not a mascot for a college football team. Okay, Beware of the dogs, right? Or a baseball team. The dogs. Sounds rough, doesn't it? Uh, beware of the dogs. Uh, beware is blepo. Uh, watch. Check out. Really examine. Be on alert. Watchful. Um, in those days, dogs were not really a, a good pet. Most people didn't have dogs for pets. And I know that's going to upset most of you guys. You're going to say, oh boy, I have trouble with Philippians because Paul's got a problem with dogs. And I know most of you own dogs. I go, oh man, what are we going to do when we hit this? Man, they might all just walk out. I mean, sometimes dogs are really important to people. I used to own a couple of things. I like my dogs. <laughs> well, I just offended one right there, right at the back. They weren't, for the most part, they weren't pets back then because they were mangy, they were scroungy, they were nasty, they were scavengers. And if they were in the city, they lived in the streets and they dug out the garbage. You can see how nasty they could have been, and a lot of them had rabies and they even killed people. And so, therefore, you get that word dogs. Well, they're considered the lowest of the low. Uh, wow. Get away from the dogs, right? Well, why, why does Paul say dogs? Well, if you were Jewish, you would say dog. They said dogs all the time, and they were referring to people. They were talking about the Gentiles. Those are the dogs. Any Gentile is a dog. They're separated from God's covenants. They're separated from us. They're, they're, they're terrible. They're evil, evil. They're nasty. They're wicked. They're mangy. <laughs> Those are the dogs. Paul turns the table. He says, no. That's not the dog we're talking about. We're talking about Jewish people who were bringing in their legalism along with Christianity. And Paul says, you're dogs. They are dogs. Watch out for those dogs. Wow, he turned the table completely. It's on Jewish people. Wow. They, these dogs were vicious. And so when Paul says this, and it's the worst thing that you could say it was call somebody a dog like the, like the Gentiles because they hated them so much. And he says, the dogs. Paul wasn't nice right here. 
Because you see, he hates joy stealers. In, in, in this sense. In, in, a, in a Christian way. <laughs> Anybody who comes along in this day and says you are to be saved, but you have to go through this spiritual, uh, special ceremony. You have, to, you have to do something. You have to, you have to do this kind of thing. Um, some kind of ritual. You have to be this certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You have to speak a certain way. You have to wear your hair in a certain way. You have to go by our codes, our ethics. You got to perform to meet our standards. Or you just gone back to Phariseeism. They're called dogs. Did you know that that's a vicious, derogatory term? And that's why Paul calls these Judaizers. Doesn't stop there. Beware of the uh, who the evil workers. Again, beware. Be focused. See this. Watch out. They're there. They're going to be around. Now, these are uh, would be the same people, but he magnifies this. Uh, they they amplify their external religiosity. They see themselves as workers of good. They're pleasing God. They're earning His favor by being a certain way, doing a certain thing. They're noble upholders of the ceremonies and the rituals of their religion. Matter of fact, they might even light candles, bow their knees and genuflect to the east. They've gone through the water and uh, they've done all the good deeds and even done their beads. They filled up all the agenda with those required things. And they've done all that good. And the fact of the matter is, they're not good workers. What are they? Evil workers. You say, Dennis, how can you call them evil? I didn't say it. Paul said it, which the Holy Spirit inspired him. They're evil. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Remember Jesus saying that? Paul has this same thing going on. Evil workers because they are evil. They take the work of Christ, which is all grace, and they add to that. It's Jesus plus something. That's dangerous. It's saying that Christ's work is not sufficient. We've got to do something else. I have to do this. Yeah, Christ did that, but here's what I have to do. It's the wickedness of all wickedness, folks. This is the worst thing that anybody can do. Who is it that Jesus condemned while He was walking here on the earth? Who did He pronounce the woes to? The religious people. Remember John the Baptist? You brood of vipers, you snakes! Nothing good to say about these people who look so good. The people looked up to these people. The people who wore their fancy robes and looked so religious and set all the laws for the people to follow. The wickedness that was there. You know why? Because it's pride at its apex. They want people to look upon them. They're worse than even the people who say they're atheists. Because they're posing as Christians and leading people down the false way. Unregenerate people. 
religious people, they do things that even can be good, but Paul says they're vicious, they're wicked, they're evil, they're working to please God. That sounds so good. They're working to please God. Can we do that? No. We can't work to please God because His works are the works that we work in us. Yes, we want to please God, but it's because of what He's worked in us and it is not of us. They were evil because they were motivated by false belief. It's the opposite of grace. Grace says it's all God. The other religion, which is all the other religions, Eastern religion and everything else, says I've got to do something. Or you have a Christianity mold that says, yes, we believe in Jesus and He died on the cross for our sins and He took away the sins. But we have to pray to... We have to be baptized. We have to take communion. We have to be. We have to go to church every Sunday. You can name all the rules that you want. We have to look a certain way. Right? It's called pride, and that is what Paul is really hitting on when he calls them dogs. He says evil workers. Now he moves to the false circumcision. Beware, again, watch out. Beware, blepo. Watch this. Watch out. They're there. Man, you're talking about offensive. Paul is really offending them now when he says circumcision. Oh, how dear that was to the Jews. And the ones who became, quote, Christians hung on to the circumcision and said there is no way you can be a Christian until you're circumcised. And they're talking about the Gentiles over here. Uh, you know what? They prided themselves in that circumcision. That was the main thing about this false stuff that was coming in. There's a word in the Greek is paratome, and it means to cut around, circumcise. Paul says you're not the circumcision. You're not that cutting around. You're the katome, which means you're the mutilation. Are you ready for this? You're, you're really this. You're the false circumcision. You're, you're the castration. That's the idea. You're not of the circumcision. You're the castration. Because here's what you do. You think you're circumcised? He says, oh boy, are you ever wrong. You think you fit in God's design and the symbolism of circumcision? Forget it. There is nothing truly spiritual about you. It was a physical Mutilation. Go to Galatians 5.12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, right? Galatians 5.12. Paul was blistering in this letter. (laughs) 7.12. I wish that those who are troubling you, these Judaizers, would even mutilate themselves, castrate themselves, that's the idea. You say you're circumcised. Here's what I wish. This is strong. You know what? Well, they, they seem just like us. They're, they're, they're so close. Boy, they, they sure are certainly lovely people. And they, they really have helped us. They've done so many good. I can't see how they couldn't be Christians. They certainly are nice people. They're religious people. And they go to church. You know, they're trying their best to get to God. They're doing the best way they know how. 
Paul says. They're dogs. But they're really doing good and they really mean well. Paul says, they're the circumcision. Right? Wow. They're uh, the false circumcision. And he's also said that they are evil workers. They were glorying in the flesh. In Acts 15, you have the first church council. And it met for this reason. And you have Paul there. You have Peter there. You have apostles there. You have people who are sound in the faith who know the Word of God and they knew that there was a problem. The problem was a circumcision. And they were wanting Gentiles to be circumcised. You must have that. You can't be a Christian without that. Now we know better than that. Why are people saying that? Well, that was because that's just the way it was. They grew up in that. That's the way it is. And I'm not going to change my mind. That's the way it is. You have to be. Did they get that from Scripture? Any? Well, they look in the Old Testament and they kind of see that. It's part of the covenant. But there's something more that fulfilled that. And what they did is they gloried in the flesh. Well, this first church council as they met together, and you've got all the heavy hitters and your apostles, and they come out and say, no, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. You are saved because of the grace of God and nothing else. There is nothing that you can be doing that can please God. And, and so they sat down. Here's what this is. The circumcision is is out the window now. It's been fulfilled in the person of Christ. Gentiles don't have to have that. They settled that. That was at the first church council because they were coming up against this so much. What these Judaizers were doing were glorying in the flesh. It's what they could do. And it's, it's what they said. It was a system and it really gave glory to men or gave glory to self. When you get glory to self, you're doing something in the flesh, right? Glorying in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. We as Christians have no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. Uh, we have no confidence there. There's nothing, nothing there that, that can uh, please God there in that sense. Paul uh, saying uh, it's to take the rightful place of Jesus Christ when you add on anything else. Those are simply external. When you realize that, you know what? The good news of the Gospel, of the grace, of the glory of Jesus Christ sets you free from all of the law and the bondage. And we have the law written on our hearts. We do not do away with that. And yes, we are to uh, be obedient. We know that. But all those things were external not internal. And so we say, where is your joy centered? Could it be that our joy at times is centered upon who we are? Could it be that the joy is centered upon of all the things that's happening around us? Ooh, I enjoy this. I like this. Well, hey, that was a great baseball game. Look at that. It was a no-hitter by the Cardinals and they hit ten home runs. I'm, you know. Is it centered in that? No. Is it centered in for what we do for ourselves? Is it even centered as what I can do for God? Well, in one sense, we want to do for God, but it really comes down to this. We are centered in all of grace. 
It's all grace. Nothing more. Nothing more. Nothing more added to that. Everything else is lost. Matthew Mead was a Puritan. And he wrote a book. A very fascinating title. It's called The Almost Christian Discovered. It's been kind of redone, repackaged to be able to have the readability of it. Not in those real little tiny words, fine print, about three-point type. <laughs> it's a 120-page book. He addresses how far a person can go look like a Christian. If anybody's a Christian, it's that guy. And still not be a true Christian. Could be quite alarming to people. Not here to scare you. But here are some of the things he suggests. A man may have much knowledge about Christ and yet be almost a Christian. A man may have a great and eminent gift spiritual gift, leadership gift, yet be almost a Christian. A man may have a high profession of religion. He may be much in external duties of goodness and yet be almost a Christian. A man may go far in opposing his own sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may hate sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may make great vows and promises, strong purposes and resolutions against his sin, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may attain a strife and a combat against sin, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be a member of the church, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have great hopes of heaven, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may under visible changes alter life, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may be very zealous, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may even suffer for Christ's sake, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may outwardly obey the commandments and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may perform external worship yet be but almost a Christian. And get this one. A man may have faith and yet be but almost a Christian. And now you're saying, what do you mean? A man may have faith and yet just almost a Christian. Well, we must remember... The demons believe, they have faith, and they shudder. And you can say, my, Dennis, I look at all those and you're, you're talking about Christians there. I, I, I thought that was me. I thought I was some of those. Well, what we're describing here, it sounds like we're describing Christians. And what we're really describing are dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. What? Uh, all of a sudden you might be saying, oh no, what, what are you saying here? Uh, what's that mean to me? It seems so close. It, it's so close. You know, uh, look at it. But it's so far. It's so far away. But it sounds right. Yeah. All those religious things sound right. And we should be doing those things. I think Matthew Mead is absolutely right in assessing. However, that you can have all those things and be but almost only a... All, but only almost a Christian. These are not enough. So what is it? What does it take? What's the answer here? What's the evidence? What's the mark of a true Christian? 
Well, here we go. Verse 3. Those were outside things. That's the problem. For we, after saying, okay, watch out for those guys who want to steal your joy. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Ooh, boy, that sums it up. Here's the characteristic of people of true joy. Think of who you are. Think of who you are. Think of on those other ones. Is it reminded us of? Think of who they are. Even though they may look like it, beware. Do you see why Paul says beware now? Put on those glasses. Check this out. Watch out. Think of who they are. Sounds very close. Now think of who you are. This is a description of a Christian in verse 3. And it's been said, I think John MacArthur said, this is the best verse that he has found that describes a Christian in one compact little verse. And he spent weeks. He spent four weeks on these first three verses. Now, I'm sparing you that this week. We're doing three verses in one week. This is a great verse. What's a Christian, Dennis? Well, Paul was basically giving you a four-part description. The outline is there. There's the answer. Just read it. Here's a Christian. A true circumcision. You are the true circumcision. You have received God's promises that were to Abraham. Abraham had the circumcision not when he was a baby eight days old. That's when he was an adult, an old adult. But it was saying, I am underneath the covenant of God. And the people of Israel, the men, the boys, the infants, were circumcised. And that represented that they were in the covenant. Now we have been placed into the body of Christ. We have been circumcised. Spiritually cleansed. We are in Christ alone. Right? You have already received the promises. You are of the true circumcision. This is how you delineate against those false teachers. I am of the true circumcision. Here's what God did to me. Not what I did, but what He did to me. No, it wasn't because I walked down the aisle, signed a card, said a prayer, got baptized, shaved my head, got a haircut. I wear these kind of clothes. I act this way. Not that at all. You are the true circumstance. You're the people of God. You're the people of God. I have that in exclamation points in mind. You're the people of God. Now, the second one is who worship in the Spirit of God. We're here today worshiping God. The best, absolute best thing you can do is worship God. Now, we're not just talking about coming to a meeting. I, to, to me personally, I say it's the sunum bonum of the week when people get together and worship God because you get to share it with other people. They share it with you, build you up, focusing on Him. Nothing better. Do it as much as you can because that's where you will get joy. 
that will be part of it because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and it's amongst other people and it, it bounces off other people to you and then it bounces off you to other people and it just gets edified, built up. <coughs> Can't say it enough. But worship is an ongoing thing always. Every act that you do is worship of God. Everything in your life is about worship. That's what Christianity is. We desire to worship God. The only thing is it gets interrupted sometimes and we get our minds off the Lord and onto worldly things and we go, oh. But worship of God, just being God sensitive, uh, knowing the presence of God is always there. Praying always is another sense of worshiping God, right? John 4 is a great passage. You remember the woman at the well? Jesus runs into her. And uh, and she starts asking questions, you know, and she's amazed. This man is uh, somebody special. Is, is he a prophet or what is he? My, he's saying things that uh, he shouldn't even know. <laughs> and um, she gets to the the great question about worshiping God, and like, hey, listen, our people say we're we're to worship worship up here in Samaria, and yet. The other Jewish people, uh, rather than Samaritans, the Jew- other Jewish people are down in Jerusalem and they're worshiping in the temple. Well, we say where we worship at is better, and, but the Jews say that that's better. Well, what do you say? It's kind of that sense. Um, have, she says, "Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people." Verse twenty, chapter four, John say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, "Woman." Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. I can tell you right now, that is false worship that is in Samaria. You don't even worship the right God. We worship what we know. It's for truth. For salvation is from the Jews. That's where it's at right now. But he says, but an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Ah, they worship in the Spirit of God. God's presence is amongst them always. We worship in the Spirit, not in a temple ritual. Worship is our character. Worship is our nature. This is what our lives are about. To glorify God. Glorifying and worshiping Him is is the same thing. Worship is our way of life. It is us. It's our character, our nature. We're in awe of Him when we worship. We are in reverence. We are in awe. We're in fear of Him. How great this God is. And we serve Him. That's all worship. So true people are of true circumcision. They worship in the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says, here's one thing that all Christians do. We've already seen two things. They glory in the fact that Jesus has paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Remember that hymn? Jesus paid it all. There's nothing else we owe, right? He is the sole, the sovereign, the very sufficient in salvation. He is the one. We boast in the cross nothing else. Cross only. Christ only. Glory in Christ Jesus. That's what we're about. And then He finishes it off and put no confidence in the flesh. A true Christian sees the sin that he battles and realizes that 
without the strength of God in one moment, a split moment, we would all go the wrong way, folks. He has this powerful Holy Spirit in us who is working in us in a way that we cannot even imagine. It goes beyond our human thoughts. Don't look to the flesh or any of your actions for your hope. Don't look to the rituals for your hope. Don't look to anything that you've done for your assurance, for your certainty, for your belonging in the people of God. The flesh stands for self. Self stands for pride and there is no room to have confidence in the flesh when the cross is there. When we look at Christ, there is nothing there. I can't please God. I can't merit salvation in anything. I am what I am by God's grace. We're preaching Christ, Christ crucified, grace alone here, right? This is the Gospel. Do you preach to yourself the Gospel? When you do, the joy will just come out of the darkness and will just take over. I forsake any goodness in my own flesh. If somebody has something to tell you that can help crucify that flesh, we'll have all ears. Because that's what we want God to do, to take and root out what is my problem. The sin that I go against. I rely totally on Christ. Totally on the Holy Spirit. I give all the glory to Jesus Christ. All the triune God. That's a true Christian. Nothing else. And in that we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this good news. This Gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ who is shining. His face is shining. And all that we be blessed in realizing that we have been set free. We don't have to have the bonds, the fences, the walls around us anymore. They've been knocked down. We are put into the person of Christ as Him that we want and desire to please. And the reason we have that desire is because You have put it into our hearts now to do that and help us to show that to each other this morning and we're going to prove it by taking communion with You. Realizing You're with us. Realizing that someday we will take this cup and this this bread with You personally. Which goes back to the cross and we see what You did there. May You be honored. In Jesus' name, Amen.